Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzen, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning, open to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Be reading verses 11 through 14 this morning. Is that song that we just sang, is that your prayer? And do you know what that means? Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Christ would so be using us for his own glory. We're not here this morning to make much of ourselves. We're here to make much of Jesus Christ. All the glory to him forevermore. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Is that your heart's desire? Not just today, but every day. Do you stand with us as we read together the Galatians 2, 11 through 14, as we continue in on our study through the book of Galatians. Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back. And separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, 
and from whom no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. With the arrival of sin into this world, there has been an epic battle that has been begun. And that battle still goes on today. A battle against sin, a battle that's fighting sin, a battle that will go on until the time when Christ comes and ends the battle once and for all. (laughs) I can't wait for that day. And it's with the coming of sin, though, that there's been another phenomena that has to take place. And it's taken place over and over and over again. You can see it throughout the Bible. It's the confrontation of sin. Sin is missing the mark. It is falling short of the glory of God. It is a failure to obey God, to honor God, and to worship God as he deserves. And there is a reason why our sin needs to be confronted. Because sin is deceitful. Our sinful nature will try to deceive us and tell us that everything is okay that we are okay, that we have everything that we need. Our sinful nature will try to justify us. It will tell us why we are in the right. And it will convince us that we are really not that bad. Sin is deceitful. Sin will blind us. It will make us so that we cannot see clearly And this is what the prophet Jeremiah has told us. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the riddle, isn't it? Who can understand the deceitful, sick, sinful heart? That is why the heart needs to be and must be confronted because it is sinful. It was confronted the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. After an Adam and Eve sinned, after they were deceived and fell, they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And there comes a question that pierces into their hearts. God says, where are you? Didn't God know where they were? Unfortunately, he did. He knew that their sin had separated them from him. And so he asks questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? What is this that you have done? Four questions that probes into their hearts. Four questions that confronts them with their sin. Four questions that God poses to them before 
He gives the pronouncement of judgment over them and over all of mankind and over all the world because of what they have done. Or what about when Moses is on Mount Sinai? Receiving the ten words of fire from the Lord, Moses' brother Aaron, the people have sinned. They fashion a golden calf. Moses comes down. He sees what's going on. It says that his anger burned hot. He broke the tablets and then he burned the golden calf. He ground it down into a powder. He put it into water and he made the people drink the water. How would you like to do that as your punishment? That's worse than having your mom wash your mouth out with soap. And Moses then says this to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And what does Aaron say? Well, these people, they gave me this gold, I put it into the fire and out popped this calf. I don't know how it happened. And this confrontation then escalates to the point where Moses says, who is on the Lord's side? He draws a line in his hand. Who is on the Lord's side? Or what about Elijah and the prophets of Baal? King Ahab had led the people of Israel to worship Baal and Asherah. And the confrontation happens on Mount Carmel when Elijah clashes with the 450 prophets of Baal. And before the event, Elijah says to this people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Oh, dear brother and sister, isn't that the struggle in our own hearts? Limping between two opinions. Have you been limping this week? If the Lord is God, and he is, then follow him. Or what about one of the most well-known confrontations between Nathan and King David. After David lusted after Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, he took her, he committed adultery with her, she becomes pregnant with David's child, and after David unsuccessfully tries to get Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to cover up the conception, he has Uriah killed. And then we get this commentary in the book of 2 Samuel 11.27, but this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Here is the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, the one whom God had promised. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the promise that God had given David. And then Nathan comes to David and tells David a story. There was a poor man who had a young ewe lamb. And he raised this lamb and he loved this lamb. And this lamb had grown up in their family. He had tenderly cared for it year after year. But there was a rich man 
who had guests who came to his house. And the rich man went and he took that poor man's lamb and he slaughtered that lamb to feed his own guests. And David, in his outrage, says, that man who's done this deserves to die. And then what does Nathan say? You are the man. The king of Israel was not above rebuke. He was not above the confrontation for his sin. In all of these, we cannot deny, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It is in this line of confrontation that our text in Galatians stands. An epic confrontation between two of the most influential and prominent church leader, a clash of the titans, if you will. Confrontation that might break our hearts, but a confrontation that was absolutely necessary. It was important. It had to happen. And Paul relays this event that happened in his life, in Peter's life, to strengthen the argument of his letter to the Galatians. This was not done to make himself look better. This was not done to show how high he was in the church. Paul did not do this for any prideful reason whatsoever. He relayed this event, this confrontation for the church because the gospel was at stake. Specifically, it is the authority of the gospel that Paul is highlighting. That is why we need to be confronted with our sin, dear Christian, because our sin shows that we are not coming under the authority of the gospel. It is the authority of the gospel that we jettison when we sin. And we instead become an authority unto ourselves. Paul is holding up the authority of the gospel and says, everyone, everyone must come under the authority of the gospel. No one is above the authority of the gospel. Not Peter, not Paul, not nobody. Dear Christian, do you see the need for the authority of the gospel in your life? And that we must continually, daily, come under that authority. We are those who admit that we need it because sin deceives us and we can play the hypocrite. And so Paul lifts up the authority of the gospel in order to warn us against how even we can be prone to hypocrisy. And so may the Lord search our hearts this morning so that we see those areas in our life where sin can deceive us. And so what is Paul telling us here through God's word this morning. Well, four things you can follow there on your outline that is helpful. Four reasons, really, why Paul is telling us that we need the, God, we need the authority of the gospel. Number one, we need the authority of the gospel because in our hypocrisy, we will doubt our convictions. We need the authority of the gospel because in our hypocrisy, we will doubt 
our convictions. Paul had just been meeting with the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. Paul and his companions Barnabas and Titus had just gone to Jerusalem and the gospel had been recognized. The one true gospel message that they had been entrusted with. The gospel that had been entrusted to Paul to go and proclaim to the Gentiles. The gospel that had been entrusted to Peter to proclaim to the Jews. These men had come together and said, yes, this is the same gospel. It's the unified gospel. It's the one message that we are proclaiming so that Jews and Gentiles would hear about the one true, holy, and righteous God and Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They would hear about their sin, their separation from God because of their sin, the judgment that they rightly deserved because of their sin. They would hear about Jesus, the Messiah, promised from the Old Testament, who came as the Son of God, who lived the perfect life that we should have lived, but who was crucified on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And that by his resurrection from the dead, demonstrated that all his work of atonement was perfect to forgive every sin you would commit in your life. And that it's with such a sacrifice that comes the promise of eternal life to enter into the kingdom of God by being covered by the blood of the king. They would hear the call to repent and believe and so come to Christ and put their faith in him and their trust in him and in his work as all that they needed so that they would be saved. It's this gospel that Paul, Barnabas, James, Peter, and John recognized, and they were unified in it as they sought to fulfill the ministry that God had called them to. But then we get to verse 11. Here, Cephas, that's Peter. Cephas is his Aramaic name, Peter is his Greek name, same person, Peter, one of the pillars of the church. Peter, the foremost disciple of Jesus Christ. Peter, the great preacher on the day of Pentecost, who was filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter went to this city in Antioch. He travels north from Jerusalem, the area of Judea, to come to the city of Antioch, which is in a Gentile region. Antioch was the prominent church in the Gentile regions. It was the church where the followers of Christ were first called Christians. It's the church that sent Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And so Peter came up from Jerusalem to Antioch. And most people think that Peter could have come to Antioch during that time when Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary journey. So Paul and Barnabas weren't there when Peter arrived, but they were out continuing to proclaim the gospel. So Peter comes to Antioch. He's there with them. And then Peter and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas come back from their missionary journey and find Peter there in the church and what Peter has done. And there is a confrontation. It says that Paul opposed Peter to his face. A direct confrontation where Paul goes straight to Peter, straight to his face. How could this be? Just a few verses earlier, Paul and Peter had been together. They had been unified. They were in fellowship with one another. But now, Paul stands in direct opposition to Peter. How can this be? We hear the reason, don't we? Because Peter stood condemned. 
If you thought opposition was a strong word, here is an even stronger word. Paul or Peter stood condemned. And that makes us ask a question. Who is it that Peter stood condemned before? Did Peter stand condemned before himself? Was it others that Peter stood before condemned? No, I believe it was much more serious than that. I believe that Paul is saying here that Peter stood condemned before God. He had done wrong in God's eyes. But wait a second. How can Peter, an apostle, the disciple of Christ, a believer, stand condemned before God? I thought Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How is it that Peter stood condemned before God? Well, Peter at this time was in sin. And he was persisting in sin. And he was in the wrong before God. And Paul recognized that such a place was not good for Peter's soul. It was not a place that Peter could stay. Peter's eternal salvation, because it was in Christ, meant that he would not eternally be condemned. But this did not mean that Peter could live his life however he wanted, that he could sin freely, that he could, by his very life, go against and doubt those convictions that had been given to him by God. And so Peter, or Paul says that Peter stood condemned. How might Peter respond to such a confrontation? How might Peter respond? How might we respond? How dare you, Paul? How dare you confront me? How dare you oppose me to my face? Don't you know who I am? I am one of the pillars of the church. I am one of the apostles. I am, one of the, I am the foremost disciple of Jesus Christ, the one whom Christ promised that he would build his church upon. And Paul says that all of that doesn't matter. You stand condemned before God and no one, not no one, is above the authority of the gospel. Would you object to such a confrontation? Who are you? The authority of the gospel is at stake. And it's more important than you. But it's for your benefit. It's for the care of your soul. And so we see Paul's motivation for confronting Peter. It was the most loving thing that he could do for Peter. It was the best thing. To let Peter go on in his sin would not have been loving. It would not have been right or good. Paul loved his brother Peter, and it was because of that great love he had to oppose Peter to his face. This must be the motivating factor for confrontation. A love for your brother, a love for your sister. Oh, that no one would stand condemned before God. For the love of the church, for the love of the gospel, for the love of Christ This cannot and must not go on. Sin must be confronted. But up to this point, we don't know why Paul is opposing Peter until we get to verse 12. It says this, For certain men came from James, 
and he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. Let me just give one simple observation. The Christians in Antioch were eating together, weren't they? They were eating together. It's, it's what Christians have done. It's what Christians have always done. They've gotten together and they've eaten together, not just because we like food. But I think it's more than that. It's because we love one another that we get together and eat. It's why we sit around a table together to share. Because that's one place where we are the most vulnerable. So we sit down and as we eat a meal together. It's why we have fellowship meals here once a month at the end of the month is to get together and say, let's eat together. Are you eating with other Christians? You should be. Might be something that we would skip over real quick. But I think it's legit. They were eating together. Not just talking about the Lord's table, they're talking about meals together. But what was the other problem here? We have to understand Jewish culture and the Jewish law from the Old Testament. One of the main ways that Jews were to be distinguished from Gentiles or non-Jews was by their dietary restrictions and from the prohibition of contact with Gentiles. So Jews would not eat with Gentiles. They would not have contact with them and they would not eat what the Gentiles would eat. They had a strict dietary code. But with the new covenant that has come from Jesus Christ, things changed for the Jews who believed in Jesus Christ. And if anyone knew this change, it should have been Peter. Peter had experienced a vision in, in Acts 10. Do you remember that? Peter was there praying on the rooftop of a house in the city of Caesarea when suddenly he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens opened, a great sheet descended, and in this sheet were all kinds of animals, reptiles and birds. And Jesus then says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter refuses, for he has never eaten anything common or unclean. That is Peter saying to Jesus, I've kept all of the dietary laws of the Jews, Jesus. I've upheld them. I follow the letter of the law. But Jesus said to him, what God has made clean, do not call common. It happens three times, meaning that that was fixed by God. What's the meaning of this vision that Peter had. Peter, there are no more dietary restrictions for the people of God. There are no more restrictions regarding what you can eat and with whom you can eat. It lines up with what Jesus says in Mark 7, 18 through 19. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And Peter had experienced, an ex had experienced an experience like none other. And it pressed this conviction upon his heart. This conviction wasn't made up. It was a conviction that was of the best kind possible. It was a conviction that came directly from Jesus Christ himself. We as Christians are those 
who seek biblical convictions. We seek to get our conviction from what the Word of God says, and our lives are built upon those convictions and are led by those convictions. What better conviction could Peter have asked for than one that came from the Lord Jesus Christ himself? What conviction do you think would be stronger? What conviction do you think would be surer in Paul in Peter's life? We might say that there would be no conviction stronger, none surer than one that someone received from Jesus Christ himself. And Peter has been acting on this conviction. He was eating with the Gentiles. Most likely, he was eating foods that were not in accord with the strict dietary laws of the Old Testament. But what happens? Peter doubts that conviction. Men came from James. James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church, he sends men to see Peter. We don't know the exact reason why. It could be that the Jewish church had heard that Peter was what, what he was doing, he was eating with Gentiles, and they were concerned. What's interesting, though, is whatever the reason for these men coming, Paul does not confront them or confront James as if they were in the wrong. Peter, however, is in the wrong. So these men come. When they come, Peter separates himself from the Gentiles in the church. He withdraws himself. He goes back to following the Old Testament dietary laws. Why did he do this? Why all of a sudden did he change his mind? Here's the reason. You see it here in the text. Fearing the circumcision party. First, we have to deal with this question. Who is the circumcision party? You find in the New Testament it refers to different groups of people. I would make the argument that the circumcision party is different from the men that James sent. So, circumcision party, a different group of people than the men that James sent from the church in Jerusalem. Because if they were the same, there's no indication that Paul thought that James was responsible for Peter's lapse. And if you take these two groups as the same, you would have to say that Peter was fearful of James, which doesn't seem likely given the context of the first 10 verses of Galatians 2. So who are these people? I believe the best option is that the circumcision party were unbelieving Jews. Unbelieving Jews. They were Jews who would persecute those Jews who did not conform to their view of the Old Testament law. So they would persecute Jews and even Jewish Christians who departed from the law. And so there could have been this fear that when these men from James came, that what Peter was doing was getting back to these unbelieving Jews and that it would have brought persecution upon Jewish Christians. So maybe there we would understand why Peter had this fear. He was fearful, could be, that people would be persecuted, that Christians would be persecuted, that he himself would even be persecuted for taking this action. 
And so he pulled back. He separated himself from the Gentiles. If that's the case, think about that for a moment. When Paul confronts Peter, Peter, not even the fear of persecution is a legitimate reason to forsake the authority of the gospel. Would you try to explain that away? Would you say, yeah, but. I know the authority of the gospel is true, but people might be persecuted. I might be persecuted for my actions. Are our convictions that are based upon the word of God so strong that we would say, doesn't matter if persecution comes. Guess what, folks? Persecution is going to come. What's the authority in your life? Is it the gospel that you say, no, I must do this because I believe the gospel. I must live my life this way because of what the gospel says, even if it means persecution. Persecution was not an excuse to forsake or abandon the authority of the gospel. And it wasn't that Peter had changed his theology Peter had changed his conducts, not for good reasons, not for God's reasons, not because his convictions that came from God, because of his own fear. It was fear that made him doubt his own convictions and change his ways. He acted out of the fear of man rather than out of his biblical conviction. What is it that directs your life? Is it biblical conviction? Is it what you stand upon that leads you, that gives you direction, that you submit to? Is it God? Or is it the fear of man? Is it the fear of man that directs your life, that causes you to do what it is that you do? What is it that fills fills your view from day to day of your life. Who is it that's big in your life? Are people big? People big in your life and and they direct what you do and why you do what you do? Is it because you fear people and that fear of people can be paralyzing? And you live day to day because people have filled up your gaze. Or is God big in your mind and in your eyes? Is is it him who you see? Is he bigger than anyone and everyone else? And is it the convictions that come come from him that you stand upon? Is it your fear of the Lord that keeps you more to your convictions so that you can do nothing other than what is in accord with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How 
how often the fear of man can dominate us, can paralyze us, can take our eyes off the almighty, sovereign, and infinite God. Listen to what Jesus says. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. I would dare say that we've feared people who haven't even wanted to kill us. (laughs) But because we love ourselves, we let them dictate our life, even to the point of compromising and doubting our convictions. And the danger of doubting our convictions is that it affects the church, it affects our fellowship, it affects the witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't just say you have convictions. Your convictions must shape you. Your life must be contoured to Jesus Christ, shaped into his likeness. And Paul, confronting Peter, shows that no one is beyond the need for the authority of the gospel over them to let it shape their convictions so that then they live out those convictions day by day by day. Who do you fear more, man or God? Number two, we need the authority of the gospel because in our hypocrisy, we will damage others. We need the authority of the gospel because in our hypocrisy, we will damage others. How we've seen and heard and read reports of immense damage done after massive storms, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, not only the destruction of physical property, but the ruin of people's lives as they are left to pick up the pieces of what is left. It's understandable to us. It was a massive natural disaster, but verse 13 Here in our text, we are told about the damage that was done because of Peter's hypocrisy. Let's not be confused about that word hypocrisy for a moment. Oftentimes we think about it in the sense of having a holier-than-thou attitude. It's not the way that Paul is using it here. Paul is using it in the sense of play-acting. It's like you put on a mask. It's like you're somebody different. So that's what Peter was doing. He was play acting. He said he was a Christian. He said he was a disciple of Jesus Christ, but he wasn't living like it. What a danger for the church. Don't get me wrong. I don't think we should have holier-than-thou attitudes either. But we definitely shouldn't be play acting. What happened because Peter acted hypocritically? The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically as well. The rest of the Jews there in the church in Antioch pulled away from their Gentile brothers and sisters. They were eating with the Gentiles as well, but the Jews now pull back also. Peter's actions have caused a church split in Antioch. 
It separated the Jews into one church and the Gentiles into another. And Peter's inconsistent living led the Jews to do likewise, live inconsistently. But there was something even more shocking. Even Barnabas was led astray into their hypocrisy. Barnabas, who was with Paul in his ministry to the Gentiles. Barnabas who had just gone out with Paul all over the Gentile areas, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling Gentiles how they could be saved, one whose life was committed to seeing Gentiles saved, committed to seeing Gentiles put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. By his actions, he turned his back on the very ones he was supposed to be ministering to. Barnabas, one who was the son of encouragement to the church, became a discouragement to the church Through his hypocrisy, he was led astray by the Jews and by Peter. Barnabas, if anybody should have known better, if anyone might have been immune from separating himself from the Gentiles, would have been you. Do you see the effects of Peter's hypocrisy? Do you see the damage that is done to others because of his sin? This is the warning of reverse discipleship. Peter, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, was supposed to be building up more and more disciples that faithfully followed Jesus Christ. But in his hypocrisy, he did the reverse. He actually led others into the same hypocrisy. Your life impacts other people. I don't want us to miss that. Your life impacts other people. Your hypocrisy affects others. It hurts others. It harms others. It leads others astray. It is spiritually detrimental to others. You can't keep your hypocrisy to yourself. Hypocrisy leads to more and more hypocrisy. And would you say, well, it won't affect them? No, it'll affect them. Even Barnabas, even Peter, Paul's closest companion in ministry, a pillar in the church. You think that hypocrisy isn't a danger, isn't a problem? It's an epidemic, it's a contagion. And it will only affect more and more people as it's allowed to continue and fester in the church. But too often, we like to think of ourselves as a silo, that you are self-contained, that you stand alone, that you can do whatever you want, live however you want to live, make whatever choices you want to make, say whatever you want to say, hold on to whatever attitude you want to hold on to, and it won't affect anybody else. And if it does, well, that's their problem, that's not my problem. No, it absolutely is your problem because we are the body of Christ. We are so interconnected, so a part of one another, that we cannot think that if one part of the body is infected, that it won't have a destructive impact upon the rest of the body. We need to understand that discipleship in the church will happen one way or another. 
Either it will lift up souls to live according to the glorious truths of the Bible and surround people with the glorious gospel and the glory of Christ, or we will disciple others into hypocrisy and by our very actions, by our very lives, undermine the very gospel that we say we are clinging to. Are you damaging other people? Or are you discipling other people? And if you're not discipling, you're damaging. Are you promoting hypocrisy? Or greater holiness. Christ likeness and joy in the Lord. But where does that all begin? Are you under the authority of the gospel? If not, you will damage other people. You will hurt them. And I might be even so bold to say that you might not even care if you hurt them. Your life really isn't about others, it's really about you. In the wake of hypocrisy lies spiritual destruction. Destructions of the lives that follow you into hypocrisy and destruction of lives who are hurt by it. Peter's hypocrisy meant spiritual damage for himself, for the Jews, for Barnabas, and for the Gentiles. It appears that this was not a little damage, this was a damage where nobody escaped unscathed. And it must not be the authority of the gospel just over us individually. It must be over us corporately as well. That we are committed to submitting to the authority of the gospel and that we are then encouraging one another away from hypocrisy where we confess where we can confess that we've acted hypocritically, where we can go back to the gospel, draw near to the gospel, and find help in our time of need. So let us confess our need, not our perfection, not why we are, not why we are in the right, not how we think that, we think that we have it all together, but ask the Lord that we might grow. Ask the Lord for the authority of the gospel to be seen in our lives. And may it be that you need to come under the authority of the gospel for the first time today. How do you do that? You put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. You confess your sin to him. You repent of your sin. Turn to him and find forgiveness and eternal life. It's a call to rest in him and in his work upon the cross to save you. Living a hypocritical life is a burden. It's taxing. It's draining. And maybe people think that you've come to know Christ, but you never have. And if you're weighing in your mind this morning, what will people think? Who cares? What does God think? What does Jesus Christ think? Would you run to him? Would you run to his gospel? Would you let him search your heart and your soul and your mind 
Would you come to him today? Would you find rest in him today? Would you hear the words of Jesus? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that we would have ears to hear it this morning, hearts to receive it, and that it might do its perfect work in us. We need the authority of the gospel in our lives, O Lord, because we are prone to hypocrisy. We are prone to doubt our convictions. We are prone to damage other people. But Father, protect us from these things. Keep us from these things. Let us not just think we can sweep sin under the rug. Paul couldn't just sweep it under the rug. He couldn't just pretend like it wasn't there. He saw what it was doing to the church. He saw what it was doing to the people that he loved. He saw how it was obscuring your glory. And he said, it can't go on. So, Father, I pray that as Paul saw restoration in that church, So there will be restoration in the times when we need to confront sin. In those times, as it says in your words, where we need to expose the deeds of darkness. And Father, we pray that we would not have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power of love, and of self-control. Father, if there's someone here this morning who needs to come underneath your authority, the authority of the gospel, I pray that they would. I pray that they would run hard to Jesus. We're not here because we're perfect. We're here because we're desperate. And we know that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy and save us. And so, Father, today I pray that there's someone here who needs to put their faith and trust in you, that they would do that. They would not wait. They would not put it off. They would not fear any man. They would not even fear themselves, but that they would have a big view of you and your greatness and find rest for their souls. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.